The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. to read Acts 5, verses 12 through 16. Listen to God's own word revealed to us. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, the place where they worshiped, that is. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is God's Word. People are easily confused about the subject of divine miracles. Many questions abound. Do miracles continue in our time? What would they look like if one was to come to your particular life and circumstances? Should we pray for miracles? On May 7th in 2000, I believe some few people here were probably present when Dr. James Boyce appeared in the pulpit of 10th Presbyterian Church of Philadelphia for what was his last time in that pulpit in a 32-year ministry. I'm not sure that he knew that that morning, nor did the congregation. But Dr. Boyce came for a time. He wasn't scheduled to preach. He was too sick to preach because he already had very far advanced liver cancer, of which he died only six weeks later. But he came to give a greeting and to ask folks and direct their prayers that morning. All were interested, of course, in how their pastor was doing. And some of his words were recorded that he said, and I find a a paragraph of it particularly on track for us. Dr. Boyce, there in the dire situation of his life, the last weeks of his life, said, Should you pray for a miracle? You're free to do that. But my impression is that while God is certainly capable of miracles, and they do happen, they're rare by definition. He said a miracle always has to be an unusual thing. So better to pray for the wisdom of my doctors, and above all, pray for the glory of God. Now, this book of Acts actually owes its entire existence to one stupendous miracle. That, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus. If that had not occurred, we would have no book of Acts and no church. So this is a book built on a miracle. And you know that so far already we've seen uh, specific healings, a paralyzed man up on his feet, 
undeniably walking after 40 years of life when he'd been paralyzed, and now we've heard that many, many more such things were taking place. I ask that we study here for a bit this morning Acts 5, 12 to 16 and ask about miracles then and now. And first of all, my first point is the longest one, I ask you to know that miracles done by the prophets and apostles properly belong to the past. Let me explain that. In both Old and New Testaments, miracles did occur in many clusters at key times and around specific personalities. God's striking works came so as to interrupt what we would call the course of nature or even scientific principle, astronomical laws as that star of Bethlehem still, I don't think, can be rightly explained by any understanding. I've heard, I've read all some pretty technical stuff about the star of Bethlehem, and nobody quite has it figured out what the natural phenomenon might have been that brought that star to appear as it did, or how the pathway opened in the sea for the Israelites, and so on. Phenomenon occurred as prophets and apostles spoke and called forth in God's name or in Christ's name for things to happen. These happened for a God-ordained purpose. And if we were going to see the very same things happening in our day, at least in any profusion or at anyone's command, God would have to be operating by the same purposes. Now, one thing I would point out to you is that the word miracle is not very often used well. All kinds of things are called miracles that are not as in the expression, you might say, well, my friend had this terrible car accident, and it's a miracle she wasn't killed. Well, as a matter of fact, a car hit the side of her car, and the airbags expanded, and she had her seatbelt on, and she came very close, perhaps, to being severely injured, but by the protections that were there in that vehicle, she wasn't. That was not really a miracle. If it had occurred that somehow your friend had levitated out through the sunroof two seconds before the truck hit the side of her car, that would have been a miracle. And I'm not just being silly. The element of the supernatural has to be involved in a miracle. Not merely a wondrous natural occasion that is fortunately timed or, or seems very providentially wonderful. It has to be something that simply can't be explained by any natural cause. So be careful because there are many natural occurrences that are are great to behold or we say, thank God for that, but it's not a miracle. And you're trivializing the miraculous if you ascribe it to things that are not supernaturally caused. In the book of Exodus, of course, Moses was made God's spokesman to go to Egypt and say, let my people go. And God sent not only a message but he sent authenticating miracles along with his messenger, a staff that turned into a snake that had a symbolic meaning, the ability for Moses to withstand Pharaoh's cruel opposition and say there will be plagues, there will be consequences, terrible things will come, Pharaoh. They will be brought by the power of God, and they were. And then there were clusters of miracles around the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, 
first among the great prophets of the Old Testament, signaling that God was doing something new there as well, revealing prophecy in a new way. And then, of course, Jesus, the one around whom more miracles came of all kinds, miracles of nature as he walked upon water, as he multiplied bread, as he turned water into wine, as he healed, as he exorcised demons, huge displays every day. If we would understand the Gospels, probably it would be a rare day that ever went by that Jesus didn't heal somebody, if not many people. And then in Acts 5.12, we have what we see around the apostles, many miraculous signs and wonders being done. So what's God doing in these times when these waves or clusters of miracles come? Is there some common reason for this? And we think the answer is yes, indeed there is. Scripture teaches that miracles are one way that God got a hold of human attention, so to speak, to grab people by the collar and say, look, I'm doing something important here, and there's going to be spectacular things surrounding it that will show you that I'm a powerful God doing powerful things. And furthermore, as a secondary reason, but, but in sync with that, that I am accrediting or authenticating the messenger. Because the messenger himself, the one I send to reveal my truth in some new way, will be able to command my power or call upon my power. Not that he has the power, but that he can call upon divine power because he's a bearer of new revelation. If you have ever gone to a a baseball game at Clipper Stadium here in Lancaster or any other baseball stadium where at the end of the game they have fireworks. I've been to Clipper a couple times when they've done that and And I almost always know when they're doing that, whether I'm there or not. Because in Leola, I know when they're doing that. I literally hear the booms from the stadium of the fireworks. And, you know, you go, and I'm not claiming to you that fireworks are supernatural. They're not, of course. But what they are is spectacular. They, They dazzle you. They draw the eye. And you go to that baseball game, and you come home, and you remember it. You know, you remember, oh, yeah, the game at which they had those fantastic fireworks. Well, I think there's a sense in which, at least generally speaking, God does a similar thing when he dazzles by healings and by exorcisms and by works in nature that would not happen by any natural means at all. And he tells us, look, I'm a God of power. And I'm doing powerful things as I speak my word and change lives. And I'm accrediting those who witness these things, my prophets, my son, my apostles, because they're speaking my prophetic word. That's why signs and wonders happened in those ways surrounding those particular lives. So if we would say they ought to be happening the same way now, be careful we would have to have prophets and apostles of the same kind to whom these miracles were bringing the attention of the general public. And we believe the time for those people is gone. We believe God was bringing us this book through prophets and apostles and that he has completed his revelation to us. Not that he doesn't, of course, speak to us in terms of guidance and nudges and and many things of a 
particular and personal nature, but God is finished speaking the revelation of his word. And so all the displays that came to say, here's the spokesman bringing my word are not needed in the same way any longer. Scripture is written. It's closed. It's finished. And be very careful if you think this needs to be an age when these wonders need to be happening, that you're not looking for something to happen beyond the page of Scripture, God's authoritative revelation. How easily we can make idols out of these supernatural phenomenon, healings or something of that kind, and say, oh, we have to see that to know God is at work. I did not actually choose our second hymn because of this phrase, but it struck me as we sang, Spirit of God, descend on my heart, the relevancy of the second verse. I, I, I think anyone who knows that we try to coordinate hymns and sermon would think the pastor chose this because of the second verse. I didn't. But it says, I ask no dream, no prophet ecstasy, no sudden rending of the veil of clay, no angel visitant, you see. We're not asking for those things today. We don't need those things. We have this. God has spoken. And all of the fireworks, if you will, that accompanied his bringing the messengers who brought his word and Jesus himself, who of course completed salvation, are now in a sense finished. Quite a few authenticating texts tell us exactly that. One key one is 2 Corinthians 12.12 where Paul spoke of this. Things which mark an apostle, namely signs, wonders, and miracles, are being done among you. Who is an apostle? Well, he's a witness of the resurrection. He had to be alive to witness the resurrection and speak for it, speak its message of truth, and he was given a mark upon him, like if you want the sheriff's badge or something, the badge of an apostle was the ability to work signs, wonders, and miracles. Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 says a similar thing. Speaking of Christ and his salvation, it says, This salvation was first announced by the Lord and confirmed by those who heard him. God testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles. These things were testimonies to the revelation. Acts 14, 3 says similarly, Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly for the Lord who confirmed their message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. Confirmations, accreditations, authenticating witnesses. That's what miracles primarily were in the the hands of prophets and apostles. Now, folks, we have the goal that prophecy and apostolic witness were aiming at in God's Word. The Bible is not an open book. It is a very dangerous thing if anyone maintains that they today receive revelation on the same level as the apostles. We'd say no, certainly not. The time for those signs is past. We now have God's revealed mind and will. But now be careful because you might be hearing me say and you'd go away and say, all right, this morning my pastor denied that the time for any and all miracles is over. I haven't said that yet. I've only said that those who command those miracles and say, be healed in the name of Jesus Christ or demon leave him in the name of Christ and so on, who can do that and say, I have this authority from God to command these things, that time is over. But we dare not limit our God. 
our God still heals. I just had someone telling me, she's sitting here in the congregation, just telling me the other day from her own testimony of how she had cancer years ago. And the doctors came to do a reanalysis and it wasn't there. And I've heard those same stories numerous times. God does marvelous things that we cannot explain. And any physician who's honest would say, there are things we just don't know that God does, that it seems here's a tumor, here's some terrible brain tumor or something like this, and then it's turned around, it's gone. God does heal people miraculously today. That I am not denying. What we would say, though, is be careful that the role of miracles and signs and wonders of the same type as the apostles were able to call down by the authority of God, that day is past, because what they would authenticate is also past. And anyone who comes along and says, I'm a bearer of new revelation and therefore I can do healings, we say, all right, show me. Produce a real miracle. And you know there are people who can do all kinds of ingenious things and deceitful tricks and how many so-called healers have been exposed by finding little ear pieces in their in their ear by which somebody's giving signals and saying, hey, the man in the yellow shirt over there is is going to fall down when you say be cast out or something like that. And it's all a game. It's not authentic. The canon of Scripture that was testified to by signs and wonders upon those who spoke it is a closed canon, a closed collection. God is not revealing himself in this way anymore. But secondly, I want to point out this, the miraculous nature of the church of Christ. Do you understand that the existence of the church itself is actually a kind of standing miracle? We read here in Acts 5, 13 and 14 how the church was regarded in this day uh, as powerful things were happening. We read nobody else wanted to join them, the general public. Although they were highly regarded, nevertheless more and more believed in the Lord and were added to their numbers. That sounds contradictory to me, right? On the surface of it, everybody was kind of stunned by the church and didn't want to approach it casually, and yet more and more people were believing and coming into the church. I hear that as saying it was no longer a casual thing to join this church. People were trembling, in a sense. The previous verse 11 that I didn't read from last time Great fear came upon the church and all who heard these things. People were saying, this is not a trivial God. This is not a trivial little people, a group of people with magic tricks. This is something to be respected. And only those were joining, and although they were joining, they were people who God was truly saving and changing from within. You remember how that awe clung to the church God was a holy God and to be respected as a holy God and he was creating a holy body of people. Joining the church wasn't a cheap little venture like joining a lodge or a society or a a garden club or something like that. After the service this morning, we'll have lunch with folks who are hoping to be interviewed by elders and join this church and many of you who've been through our membership process know we, we endeavor to say to you, Let it be a serious commitment if you're joining this body. It's not a club. It's not simply a social organization. You're joining the body of Christ. And its first 
preeminent that you must belong to Christ, that he is personal Lord and Savior to you, and you know that his spirit lives in you, and now you're coming into this almost miracle body that God has created, that he's done things through the church in this world that are absolutely amazing. The world has tried to stamp the church out for 20 centuries, and the harder they stamp, the more we grow. Glory be to God. This is the Sunday for prayer for the persecuted church. Do we want anybody to be persecuted? Of course not. But let me tell you, where the church is persecuted is where it grows. Places like North Korea is where it grows. South Sudan, growing. We have folks here, blessed folks from us, recently in this country, from Myanmar and other places who came here from refugee camps where their faith was opposed, or perhaps they were even in those camps because of that opposition. They're here. You're most welcome, and we're so glad you're here because they want to be part of God's miracle body, the church. Folks, let's not sell our distinctiveness downriver. Let's not determine that we will do in the church and in our worship and in our outreach and our programming what the world tells us to do. Let us forsake that philosophy that says the way a church can grow is to make itself more like the world so the world will feel friendly to it. No, sir. The way the church will grow is when the people of the world behold it and say, that's different. I don't understand that. And I'm actually a little afraid of it. But that must be God working amidst that group of people. And the church cannot sacrifice the vir- her, the, her virginity, so to speak, of holiness upon an altar of worldliness. We will be distinctive. We must be distinctive if we're going to be God's miraculous people. 2 Corinthians 2.16 says we're going to have a negative effect on some people and a positive effect on others. Paul's exact words are, to one group, we're the savor of death. People look at the church, they say, look at those fools. Look at those idiots. They're out of date. They, they're my, they've sold their minds. They've given their brains away. And, and they, they just do whatever the Bible tells them to do. What's wrong with that? But Paul says, to others, we are the savor of life, to life. The very existence of the church as a work of God is a standing wonder and a miracle. But then finally today, I would say this to you. Thirdly, consider the great miracle of grace that is still at work today. Not all miracles have ended, folks, not by any means. We need not put our emphasis on seeking after physical miracles and healings and phenomenon that that might somehow dazzle people or even deceitfully creating those artificially. We do great harm if we do that. You know, there's an interesting thought contained in verse 15 of our text that says, so great was people's amazement at what was happening with all the healings that, look, it says they brought their the pallets and cots with sick people out into the street so that as Peter came by, his shadow might fall on some of them. Now, there's a lot of discussion about this verse. Does that mean that, pe- that people were actually healed 
merely because of Peter's shadow falling on them. It does say at the end of 16 that all who were brought were healed. And yet there's something in verse 15 that I would have to tell you. I side with those who say there's something unhealthy getting started there, spiritually unhealthy. It was a superstition and an imagination that this was some kind of powerful magic. And all maybe you had to do was brush, you know, remember the woman who just wanted to touch Jesus in the crowd and and she was healed because of her trembling faith. But it wasn't touching Jesus' robe that got her healed, nor was it Peter's shadow falling on you. And there can be something here that's wrong because it's craven superstition that says, just give me a little spiritual magic. Just give me my own little miracle. That's all I want. And you know what that has led to in the church over the course of about 20 centuries? The most amazing, degrading, utterly ridiculous adoration of somehow spectacular things that would have us worshiping anything associated with an apostle or a saint, for example. Somebody says he's got the last little digit of of Peter's little finger, and it's mounted in a glass case on an altar for people to come down and, and adore it. Somebody says they've got a glass vial somewhere in Europe in a cathedral with the tears of Mary in it. And scores and scores and scores of churches and cathedrals have got pieces of the true cross. One skeptic wrote one time and said, if every piece of the true cross that is adored in Europe was gathered in one place, the pile of lumber would build a pretty good-sized church. And yet people would, would come and bow and kiss that piece of wood. And if you say, well, I don't do that, I don't give way to that sort of thing, let me tell you, I'm not sure that we're entirely free of it. Because we sometimes pray when we pray. We pray when we get in trouble, and what do we say? Lord, oh, Lord, it's been discovered. My husband has a brain tumor. My mother-in-law has cancer. Lord, please, it's advanced stage. Grant a miracle, and then I'll be able to trust you and thank you, and I'll never ask for anything again. Is God in the business of candy machine miracles? I haven't found it so. And those who pray that way, I think, perhaps are quite close to those who wanted Peter's shadow to drop on them or think that in the adoration of some physical object, they're going to get a little magic and a little pizzazz in their Christian lives. Jesus spoke to this, John four forty eight. He condemned it. He he condemned a group of people saying, unless you see miracles and signs, you won't believe. In other words, your faith is wrongly founded. It's founded on superstition and magic. Let me close by telling you what the greatest of all miracles is today. It's the great miracle of grace. The great miracle that God does in saving a single human soul. I used to puzzle as a young man when I would read John's. I love John's gospel. I still do. And I always puzzled over this passage, John 14, 12, as a youngster, when Jesus said, anyone who has faith in me will do even greater things than these miracles because I am going to the Father. I scratched my head. I said, what can that mean? Jesus changed water into wine. He walked on the lake. How am I going to do any greater thing than that? 
Well, he was saying, you are going to be a participant in the greatest miracle of all, the miracle of grace, by which God transforms a human being from darkness to light, from, from sickness and sin into peace with God and a new nature. You see, this, this is the eternal thing. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All the old has passed and the new has come. Do you know, I mean, people would make a big deal out of all Jesus' miracles. How many, I don't know how many people Jesus healed. Probably thousands. In his, you could populate a good-sized town with people who were physically or spiritually or mentally healed by Jesus. Guess what? Every single one of them, without exception, died. The healing that Jesus gave them was something temporary. The healing that God gives you by your faith in the cross of his son and the resurrection of his son and the ascension of his son to be Lord of heaven and earth today lasts forever. That's the real miracle. The miracle of God's grace. What physical phenomenon would you ask for that would be better than that? The eternal preexistent son came from on high to become a baby on this earth. He rose from the dead. He mercifully saves those who call upon him. He answers prayer. He's spoken. We have the mind of God himself through prophet and apostle in a book. These are miracles. This is a miracle book. You are a miracle people if you're part of the body of Christ. What can surpass what God has done? Don't chase after trivialities and and spectacular phenomena. They're nothing compared to what God wants to do in your life, in your mind, in your heart. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is the permanent, eternal, transforming wonder. And it's the one and only miracle that you ever need. It will change you. It will change you forever. Thanks be to God. Our Father, you are the God of miracles. You are the God of supernatural power. You spoke. We believe you spoke. And every material thing that exists came into being. No scientist has ever explained it any better. I know that. Father, you are the God of miracles that can turn a guilty, struggling, heart and mind that's downcast and depressed, going nowhere, caught in addictions, caught in wrong behavior, caught in messy relationships, you can transform with the righteousness of your son. So thank you, God of miracles, for the one great miracle that we all need. And I pray, O oh God, that all would seek even this day. For Jesus' sake, amen.